0: Well, with the events that were going on this week, I turn to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, as we start. Habakkuk says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to save. Forever, I, Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I look at all this misery? Wherever I look, I see evil and destruction and violence. I am surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed, and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous, so justice has become perverted. Written almost 3,000 years ago. How long, O Lord, will we keep calling to you for help and think you're not listening? Have mercy, O Lord. God, you've heard us cry out to you after shootings at Sandy Hook. You've heard us mourn after Orlando. You've heard us weep after Vegas. You've heard us shout after San Bernardino. And God, you hear us today after Parkland at Mason-Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida. We cry out for mercy, God. But but for whom and what does that mercy look like? God, when when we say shout and come, Lord Jesus, God, may we remember that you did once come. That you came, and you showed us the way, and you were the way, and we did not listen. God, we might speak of amendments, but you spoke commandments. And we might demand our rights, but you came to give us life. You've told us to love you with all your heart, all our heart, and all our soul, and our mind, and our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself, and we continue to find ways to ignore that. God, have mercy. God, give us courage. Give us courage to not wait for someone else to solve our problems and our violence. God, remind us of our calling as humans and as especially as followers of Jesus to invest in, care for, and raise up the next generation. God, even those that are troubled Challenging and difficult to love. God, may our teenagers find our church and many more churches to be places of refuge and hope. God, we pray peace and prosperity over our cities because you say, as they are blessed, we will be blessed. So show us ways, new ways to love teenagers right where they're at, and to find and follow you, Jesus, because you're the only one who can fix what is broken in our world and in our homes and in our hearts. Amen. Well, last week we started a new series, like Derek mentioned, on relation slips. So if you haven't heard of a relation slip before, it's a relation slip is when you say something or do something that you shouldn't have said, and someone gets hurt and it hurts the relationship. Or maybe a relation slip is when you don't say or don't do something when you needed to do it. And so now you're in this place where there's friction, or in you know Minnesota there's like, uncomfortableness, and, and we don't like uncomfortableness, and we don't like to, you know, deal with confrontation, so we'll talk about that later, but it causes conflict, confusion, and pain, and so we're trying to listen to and learn from Jesus, who was the master at relationships, who knew how to dealt with, deal with difficult people, to prevent and overcome these slips that we make, and last week we talked about two principles or two actions that we need to take the first was to elevate the priority of relationships, to realize that God does say that to love him is to love our neighbor, and to not only elevate the priority of our relationships, but to expand the boundaries of our relationships. And uh, Ash Wednesday last week, we started this uh, emphasis that we talked about called One Kind Thing, where we would look at and look for ways that we could reach out and just Be kind, which we'll learn today is not nice. But the reason that we are challenged to do this is because it's so easy for people to choose religion over relationship. Maybe you have people in your life that you're like, you know, they say they love God, but they're just mean. Or they say they love God, but they are so judgmental. See, this has happened for thousands of years. It happened way back uh, when the Bible was written. In fact, the apostle Paul deals with this church in the place, it's just starting to be a church, in a place called Corinth. It's in Greece. And there were 250,000 citizens that lived in Corinth. Corinth was a city that was also home to the temple goddess Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. Uh, It was filled, the city was filled with people who were intrigued by man's wisdom and people's wisdom. They loved to listen to the great orators of the day. They did all they could to keep their bodies in physical shape uh, because, again, of the Greek goddess of love that, that looks mattered. And so it was filled with people who were talented, wealthy, and beautiful. And those, some of those people came to know Jesus. And then it was also filled with people that were not so beautifully talented, not so lovely, not so wealthy. In fact, one of the Scholars that I was reading and uh, the history of Corinth said that, that some of the wealthy people had two slaves for every wealthy person. Uh, they didn't do slavery exactly like we did slavery, but uh, it just shows the disparity of wealth. And so these people come to know Jesus, and they are trying to live out their faith in this place, and they brought in some of their cultural ways, like they cri- compared and critiqued their spiritual leaders They prioritized and excluded people from worship, from communion, and they may have even bragged about who had the best spiritual gifts. And so Paul writes a response to them as he has seen them. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, or actually at the end of 12, as he's explaining these gifts, these talents, these ways that the Holy Spirit of God may have helped people become more than more than just themselves, like more of who God made them to be. And as they did these things, the, sp- the kingdom of God was changed. Other people's lives were impacted. They were great. And they started comparing each other's gifts. So he says, eagerly desire the greater gifts. But yet, I will show you the most excellent way. And so people probably are anticipating, ooh, what's this secret spiritual gift? And he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, then I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. It's this hollow reverberation. If I have this gift of prophecy, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I don't love, then I'm nothing. And if I give all that I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but I have no love, then I Gain nothing. And so I think what the person, what Paul is referencing here, is these practices that would have impressed Christians. It's practices that, really, if we take some of the ancient language out of it, we might also be impressed with. For example, you might marvel at someone's ability to speak boldly or eloquently about God. Maybe this person has these amazing spiritual experiences and they can just talk about them so easily to other people, or they can, at just the right time, quote the exact Bible verse, and they give these answers that you're like, whoa. Well, that's what he's talking about. Or he talks about being awed by someone's ability to trust God for great things. Maybe you know someone who had this risk-it-all moment, and they put their career on the line, or, you know, they... They put in their two-week notice or they were going to quit their job and God just redeemed the situation. Or they, they had a relationship that was on the edge and they trusted God for it. it their faith seems so big that it makes yours seem so small. And then finally, he talks about someone who can give sacrificially and abundantly to God. It's, it's someone who just sees where there's a need and then meets that need. They're constantly serving and giving God. And, and you are wowed by these people because they seem so self-sacrificing. You're like, I can make it to church almost on time. Well, I know I have the tendency when I see these people to go like, wow. And they kind of they get raised up on this pedestal. They, they make me seem small. They seem huge. And, and what Paul is saying is just not so fast. Before we get too excited or impressed with what they're doing, we got to keep it in perspective. Because these spiritual gifts, all of them are important, but the most important thing is that we love people, that we see people, that we care about people. So these acts of faith are impressive if we're loving, and if we're not, then. These acts are like winning a gold medal. Because maybe you've been watching some of the Olympics. They're really big, cool gold medals. But these acts are like winning a gold medal and finding out that it's hollow, painted plastic. That's what he's referencing. Because the most important thing in God's eyes isn't being impressed or wowed with these spiritual gifts. It's loving other people. And Paul actually calls it the most excellent way. If you're a child of the 80s, then you remember Bill and Ted's bogus adventure, like, whoa, that is most excellent. So, right? Who thought that was going to come in? It's the most excellent way. And I think Paul says loving people is the most excellent way because that's what Jesus said. He says in John 15, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And actually, love is one of the top 10 most looked up, Uh, words, and Miriamwebster.com. And the, the editors of this website wisely commented, many people arrive at our site with this question, what is the meaning of love? But that actually requires a definition that goes far beyond what we can list here. It's true. See, I think that's the problem. I think the problem is that we create our definition of Love. And then we try really, really hard to live out that definition. And how we prevent and overcome slips is simply possible when we love like Jesus. It's only possible when we love like Jesus. Now, maybe you're like, ah, I'm not, you know, I don't know if I believe everything you believe. I don't know if I love Jesus. Well, I'm not saying that you have to love Jesus at this moment. I'm just saying that preventing these relation slips is only possible when we love like Jesus. So what does Jesus' love look like? How can we love like that? Paul actually goes on to say what it looks like right in this letter to these Corinthians. After he says, I will show you the most excellent way, and if I do these things, I get nothing, I gain nothing, I am nothing. Then he says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy It does not boast, it is not proud. Love is not self-seeking, it does not dishonor others, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. In fact, love does not delight in evil, it rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Maybe you've actually been to a wedding where you've heard these verses and you're like, oh, that's lovely. But you know the people standing up there. And you're like... Oh, God help them. Uh. See, because here's what we do. We take our definition of love, and then we decide what it means. For example, we think that love is patient, and we think of patience as time. And so, like, I'm patiently waiting for someone to get their act together, or I'm patiently waiting for something to develop in its own time, and it's not. Or, I... Have places to go, people to see, deadlines to meet. I don't have time to be patient. So then we think it's loving by going, why can't this person just go faster or move over into the other lane? Why can't we come to the stop line and all see where there's positions and get there quickly? Doesn't everyone count the number of people who are in the grocery store line and go to this and then also check the checkout people, the advanced class? You know, not just looking at how many people are in line, but how quickly the people are cash checking out. Like, everyone should do that. And then you criticize. If if you do that, I, I might have my moments. I realize that not only am I criticizing them for not being like me at that moment, but then I'm also not even considering their situation. That in my heart, I'm being just rude. That's complete relationship slip. And that's what we do. We define love with our own definitions and then try really hard to meet that. Like, love is patient, love is kind. Well, we think of kindness as being nice. Mm, we tell our kids, we tell kids in general, be nice to each other. Can't you be nice to each other? Why don't you be nice? Just be nice. And as people who live in Minnesota, and if you're a transplant, I'm sorry, um, we wave at fellow drivers at four-way stops, and we wave them through. Look how nice I was. I totally had 10, ten more seconds. It's not going to wreck my day unless you're turning into my lane. Then I'm totally screwed. But, or, or the snow that we've had in the last month. It could be 20 below, 30 below wind chill. We will dig you out of the snow. We will dig out of the snow with our bare hands. That's how nice we are. We are exceedingly polite. But we haven't invited the new neighbor over, and it's been months. We're incredibly reluctant to give feedback to our coworkers on how they could improve. And we have such a strong desire to not intrude into someone's life that people who are not from Minnesota see us as people who have massive personal distance and don't care about others those are major relation slips one more cuz we could go through the whole list but i don't think we need to love is patient love is kind love does not envy it does not boast it is not proud And this one, we pretty much take at face value and define it. At least I do. I I say, okay, I'm not going to be prideful or boastful or envious. But how I define that is, I'm not going to say boastful things. I'm not going to act in envious ways. I'm not going to let anyone know I'm prideful. I'm just going to think it. And when we do that, we think that we're being loving. Because I didn't actually say it out loud. But Jesus would say, what has happened in our heart and in our minds has really happened. And it's created this distance in the spiritual realm. And we know it's created distance with the person because that's what pride does. That's what envy does. That's what boasting does. It separates us from people. And really what pride says is, I'm not like you. You're not like me. I'm probably better than you. And this is what we do. And rather than continue down the list of what Paul says love is in 1 Corinthians 13, I want us to consider why he describes love this way. Why does he make these eloquent words? I think Paul describes love this way because, as another writer has said, God is love. Love. And so if God is love, then think about this. Then God is patient. And God is kind. And God does not envy and does not boast and is not proud. And God does not dishonor others. And God is not self-seeking. And God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes. And always perseveres. And I think that's true, but I think there's more. Because if we look further back in the story, we see that there's this guy Moses who was called and God used to rescue God's people from Egypt, the most powerful empire in the world at that time. And these people may have known about that God who promised to bless them and save them and and bring them into a land that they would be a blessing to other people to multiply them and make them prosper. But even though they knew about that God, I would contend that as slaves in Egypt, they really didn't know up close and personal that God. And so this journey through the wilderness was this journey for them to learn who that God is and who they were. And at one point, it says that God would speak to Moses as one, face to face. God would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And in these moments, God is revealing his majesty and his goodness to Moses. Now, I want you to think about when you speak face to face to someone, especially a friend. Uh, Because there was a time, if you're under 25, when we couldn't see someone when we called them. I I know, right? (laughs) Uh, My kids are like, the phone doesn't work. Well, why? Because I can't see them. Oh, yeah, the Wi-Fi is bad. I hate that. Be nice. And so when we see someone's face, think about what we can understand. We can see their eyes, the twinkle or the scowl that might be in them. We can hear inflection with our ears. We might even be able to, if they're our friend, you know, not to be weird, but they do have a scent, you know, we can smell the familiarity of the conversation or their clothes or their shower. But but when we turn our backs towards someone and try to have a face-to-face conversation. We just see how much is missed. So I don't want us to skip over the fact that God speaks to Moses face-to-face as one would speak to a friend. Or maybe you remember your teacher saying, look at me when I talk to you. <laughs> or you're a parent or a coach, and you're like, if I can't see your eyes, I don't know if you're looking, listening to me. But my eyes, my ears don't have eyes. Face to face, up close and personal. This is how God spoke to Moses. And then Moses asked to see God's goodness, to get a picture of that. And God says, okay. And in Exodus 34, God gives Moses this glimpse of who he is. And remember, this is all in reference to the question of why can God be kind, patient, Not envy, not boastful, not proud. Why is that definition something that Paul would write about what love is and who love is? Because in Exodus 34, when God gives this glimpse, it says that he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining his love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. God came proclaiming his name, the Lord, Yahweh. He is Yahweh. It should echo this phrase from the Bible. God is who he is. I am that I am. That's God proclaiming his name. This is who I am. And since you really don't know what I am is other than this verb, to be, uh, then, okay, so you will be who you will be in every situation. But what exactly does that look like? And then it, it says what it looks like. The compassionate, gracious God. The one who comes in front of and we can see. The Lord is compassionate. It's this Hebrew word, rakam, uh, And I think I said it right. Yeah? Yes. Nadia says yes. And it means to have these feelings of concern, not just feelings, but even actions for someone in their difficulty, regardless of their own previous actions. It's related to the Hebrew word for womb, as if God is like a mother who cares deeply about her child, regardless of how they behave. That's compassion. It's a love that always protects and hopes and trusts and perseveres. Oh, there's the link there. It says God is gracious. God shows mercy and kindness, even though they've done nothing to deserve it. That's way beyond niceness. That's who God is. It says that God is slow to anger. That's actually what patience means, slow to anger. It's less about time and more about this holding back of anger. God is the one who who comes to Moses and reveals himself. And this is almost immediately after he gives his word and makes this covenant to the people. It's like they got married, God and these people. And then when God spoke to Moses for 40 days on the mountain, the people went and made another God. We call it the golden calf, but they were worshiping an image and idol. They broke the first two commandments. And this is right after that. That God is gracious. That God gives kindness to them. That God is not angry with them, but actually comes to them in spite of what they've done. It says that God abounds in love and faithfulness. He's, this is, faithfulness is not only this truth, it's also this loyalty, this loyal love. That God is rich and generous in his commitment to these people. So if God makes a promise, God keeps a promise. If you're wondering if someone's going to come through for you, if God said it, God will come through. That's who God reveals himself to be. And it says he maintains his love for thousands of generations. This commitment that he protects and preserves, it's something that he guards. He never runs out of this patience. He never runs out of this kindness. Maybe you remember one of your parents saying, I've just had it with you. God never does that. Never does that. He chose them for himself, but it's not for personal advantage. And he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. It's like, God, forgiveness has this idea of carrying shortcomings. So I don't know if you've ever gone hiking with kids. They can carry very little. They're supposed to carry, um, I think it's, one pound for every 10 pounds of body weight. So, you know, an 80-pound kid could carry eight pounds, uh, and they might start to complain about that. So the parent carries more. And that's what all the hikes, if you want to be a hiker, we can talk. I like it. But the parents carry all the big stuff, and that makes it more fun for the kid. Not that it's all about fun, but in the same way, He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God understands that we're human, that we're like the children, and he carries the hard stuff. He knows that we're going to be wayward. He knows that we have shortcomings. He knows that our tendency is to wander off the path. He doesn't excuse it, but he doesn't run out of patience for it. It's like when a child chooses to rebel, a wise, good mother does not run after that child. Now, they don't ignore them either. They just keep close watch. Like, Okay, going into four lanes of traffic, they probably chase after. But climbing the tree that's, you know, not four stories up, but one story, they might just watch. And then when the kid comes in with a cut knee and bruises, they comfort. They ask questions. They don't accuse. That's the the, the picture that God is giving here. And then it says, the one I've always had a hard time with. God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generations. And so I did a little more study on this because I'm like, oh, this just feels, I don't know, too human, not godlike enough. And the word punishes actually means pay attention to, look after, take inventory, evaluate Now now it could mean to discipline or punish but i think it means come close because you need to be close to inspect and that god ever inspects our hearts because he loves us he wants to know where we're at he knows where he's at he wants to know where we're at and so like a good parent god takes this long view and might even let a child suffer because they know that some children are only going to learn through their own experiences, and we pray for them. I often pray for my kids. I pray you'll have the wisdom to learn from other people's mistakes so you don't have to make more of your own. But sometimes God lets us make those mistakes and have the consequences. Well, that's a looking after, a taking stock. That's who God is. And when Moses experiences this, he bows in worship at once. And to worship something is to see what something's worth and then to respond to that worth. And that's what we have to do if we want to love like Jesus loves. we got to access this greater love. Jesus says, love each other as I have loved you, but greater love has none than this, to lay down one's life. For one's friends see greater love involves a death it involves a sacrifice at the last supper Jesus final night on earth he was eating with his disciples he knew one of them was going to betray him he knew he was going to be arrested and he goes to pray and as he prays he says God if you're willing take this cup from me yet not my will but yours be done I am willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to surrender. I am accessing this greater love. This is a love that perseveres in all things. This is a love that we can count on and commit ourselves to. And it involves a death, and it involves a resurrection, because that's Jesus' story. And it doesn't just have to be his story. If we want to love like Jesus, we have to tap into this resurrection power. But That means we have to tap into the death, too. We can't have resurrection unless we have death. And Jesus says that when we're joined with him in his life, we'll be joined with him in his death, but then we'll be joined with him in his resurrection. And that's what Paul talks about when he says we were died and buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ is raised from the dead by his glorious power of the Father, we are raised and can live new lives. Our old life is about doing it by our own definitions and trying really, really hard. And sometimes we'll get it. As I was doing the one kind thing thing this week, I noticed how much I was thinking about the person that was in front of me at that time and wondering what their concerns might be. And I found this concept to be very unfamiliar. And I'm embarrassed to say that as a pastor. But how often I can get stuck in my own head. And so, while some of the things feel like they were big things that I did, and some of them felt very small, so far in the journey I'm learning that what this is doing is it's causing me to see the other person and then wonder about their need. And the old life would say, now access your own power and definitions and try really really hard. The new power would say, let the love of Christ flow in you and through you. Which means you have to die to your agenda. And that's, if we want to really, really prevent these relationships, it's not just love as Jesus loves, it's surrender to his love. Let yourself and your agenda and your definitions be buried so new ones can rise up that's when we'll experience a greater love. So as the band comes up, I just want you to consider what God's Spirit might be saying to you. Maybe you need to lay down your definition of patience that, like me, you think of it as time, and you need to lay that down so you can take up God's character of putting his agenda before anyone else's, especially your own. Maybe you need to lay down your definition of kindness, and take up God's character of being sensitive and concerned about someone's situation. Maybe you need to lay down your definition of envy or boasting or pride and take up God's character of inhumility, valuing others above yourself. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for revealing yourself through your word and revealing yourself in this story to Moses. I just picture that rock and this mountain and your glory coming over and what it was like to speak as if you were face-to-face with a friend. God, in your wisdom, you are full of justice and truth and grace and mercy and kindness and goodness. You are a good, good parent to us. I pray that you'd speak to us, God, about where we're slipping and where we're defining our own ways and where we're trying in our own strength. And God, that we would surrender to you so that we really could love like you loved and love like you still love. Because the world needs it. And we need it. Amen.